I'm going to pick up and continue a series I began uh, two or three weeks ago, and I've got a larger series in mind, if I can make get it all put together properly, on a Christian worldview, and this is part of that whole thing, to help us see what I really want you to see is the value of the Bible's teaching on big issues and what the Bible says about the world around us that's being completely disregarded and and uh, ignored now. And it's one reason why we have all these difficulties in society that we didn't have 50 years ago. Now, we had plenty of problems 50 years ago or 60 years ago, but uh, we've got different ones now and so forth. Uh, so we're going to try to continue that series this morning with another topic of how we got here, how we got where we are in our society and in people's thinking. I'm going to talk with you instead of about truth, which I did a couple weeks ago, I'm going to talk with you about man. Now this even goes back, it's a precursor, as we'll see a little bit, to the two or three lessons I did on the fact that we live in an upside-down world, that the world is not like it was intended to be. It's obvious to people who think about it very much, and it, it's what creates a lot of the difficulties people have with the Bible. Uh, which is the idea that things are if that God if God is a good God why are things like they are and this is a real issue it's, it was an issue with me when I was younger and, and I confess that sometimes I still I don't understand the way things are like they are why things are like they are sometimes and and so I'll confess that to you it bothers me and um, probably never get over that but I I have confidence that God is a just God and will make things right. That's why I believe so strongly in the judgment day and what, even what we talked about last week, the subject of hell. That's why I, why I feel strongly about the subject of hell. Because hell is, the, is going to fix these problems. Not the way we would fix them, but hell is what is God's eventual final response to the injustice and the wickedness that we see around us, the unexplainable depravity and wickedness. Hell is the only just response to that. And so when you throw away hell, you've thrown away any hope of any justice eventually in the universe because there won't be justice in this upside-down world we live in. If you're waiting for us to come up with a, to elect a candidate or a political system that's going to create true justice everywhere in this society or in this earth, you're waiting in vain. That's not going to happen because the people administering the justice are flawed themselves. We think, oh, let's throw all the bums out. What are you going to get when you throw all the bums out? You're going to get new bums. That's all you're going to get because they're humans. There is no system. Well, our American system was designed to limit the influence of those bad people because it spreads power out over a lot of people and limits their power. It was designed to do that. Why? Because the, the founders of our country didn't trust human beings to have power. Because what do people do when they have power? Well, you see it all over the place. They abuse it. They run roughshod over the weak. And so we have injustice in the world. Always been that way. It's not something new to America. It's always been that way. Our system was designed to limit that, not to eliminate it, but to limit that influence. And it does to a large degree, but not altogether. So in any event, we're just never going to have that. Stop being a utopian. We're going to, one of our lessons is going to be on utopia, by the way. You know what utopia means? I think it means the same place as nirvana. It means nowhere. Nothing. The idea, we, we got this, wrote the, he wrote the book Milton did on utopia, and we think utopia is this 
great, wonderful place. And what it means is nowhere. There's no place that's utopia, if you know what it means. And, and we got nirvana. Oh, heaven's like nirvana. You know what nirvana means? It means nothing. Okay? Nothingness. That's what you do when you're a Hindu. You go into nothingness. And so, uh, anyway. Where were we? Well, how we got here. Let's talk about man today. And I know we're going to repeat a little bit. Hopefully not too much. But just to get us in the same ballpark where we've been, um, I do want to do something before we start, though. Somebody called in the show today, the radio show. Don't know about this Lutheran benediction. What's the Lutheran benediction? Well, a benediction is a blessing. And uh, the Lutheran in Lutheran churches and probably Catholic churches, they recite this blessing all the time. You've heard the blessing, but... It comes from the one that I know I know of comes from Numbers. This is a, this is a wonderful passage. I just want to read you this blessing. And I want you to think about this. It's not the sermon. Maybe it should be the sermon next week. I'll work on that. Here's what God tells Aaron. He tells Aaron this. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift you up, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. This is a great blessing. But here's the trouble. We Americans, when we think of blessing, we think, make sure nothing bad happens to me that I don't like. Make sure my Starbucks coffee is hot in the right order. Make sure the parking place is free at work. Make sure there's no traffic. Make sure my mortgage rates stay low. This is our concept of God blessing us. His face shining on us. Everything goes my way all day long. It's a good day when everything goes my way. Such shallowness. But this is not what this blessing means. For the Lord's face to shine upon you. So we'll talk about that some other time. But I think I think you'd do well this week to mark this number six verse down, chapter down and read this over and meditate upon this blessing that God God said, this is my, my name being pronounced upon my people when you pray this prayer, when you bless them this way. So just think about that. Anyway, uh, we talked about the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. That's a wonderful statement. The more older I get, the more I see the value of the truth in everything. If you don't figure out the truth we can get involved in all kind of personal problems and dilemmas and everything and in the end we're looking for what's the truth about this situation and finding that and and having some confidence in it is it will set you free even if it's bad news if it's the truth it's helpful to you here's all i just want to i just want a good test result really is that what you want i don't want a good test result i want an accurate test result okay i want even if it's bad news, I, I don't want a false negative. Do you? Oh, you're free of cancer. Go on your merry way. Your heart's great. Fall over before you get to the elevator. I want the truth. Then I can act on that truth properly. That's why the truth sets you free. But we don't want the truth. We want what pleases us, what makes us look good, and so forth. That's a long story. And that's why Jesus again said another big passage. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. So if we're not willing to understand there is a truth, and that truth is embodied and personified in Jesus Christ, God's Son, 
he is the truth and therefore he is the way that to God, then we're going to be lost. And modern man is lost. Your friends and neighbors, maybe even you are lost because this truth has been lost to them. It used to be people could reason their way through things. And even if they came to wrong conclusion, at least they were able to th- focus and to reason properly. But what's happened since the Renaissance for the last 500 years or more is people have eventually lost any belief that there is such a thing as truth that can be found. And therefore, modern man is hopeless. Oh, we have a lot of big talk about going to the stars and discovering secrets of the universe. But the truth is, if you read anybody who is important about philosophy and science, we are a hopeless bunch of people. We do not have any hope. We are lost. And there is just despair. Man is nothing. All this talk about how wonderful it is to be part of the circle of life. Well, you know what? You know where the circle of life ends up? It ends up in a compost pile. There's a theory that plants, you know, are so everybody's becoming a vegetarian. I hope we don't have any vegetarians because I want you to get offended. But you know, plants are playing a trick on us. They they let us eat them, small numbers. Because they know, and then we take the ones, other vegetables, and we grow them, feed them to cows, and we eat the cows, and then we die. And then the plants get to digest us and turn us back into, you know, we put, we put ourselves in the ground, the plants get to digest us and eat us. So it's a big circle, all right. Plants are the wicked things in this. They're just waiting to digest you and turn you back into compost. And you know what? That's not very far from the truth if there's no God. If there's no God, that's not very far from the truth. Then we have that song. I've got a sermon on this somewhere. You can look it up on the website. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. That's such a beautiful little song, little ditty. We can sing it all day long. All we are is dust in the wind. Think about that for a moment. Is that really what it is? Anyway. So we've rejected the divine because in our thinking, all of our intelligence since the Renaissance, we've rejected anything above man. Man is God. Man is all there is at the top. Everything else is gone. So people postulate a grace or a higher story, the upper story here, with God and the heavenly things and the unseen spirit, the world and things we don't know that is unseen. And then the lower world, the natural world that we can see, we, we postulate this thinking. And these two realms were at one time in Christian thought to be united together. They are united. They both come from the same source, God himself, and they both make sense together because of God. But what's happened is that since the Renaissance, which has happened in the 14 and 1500s, when men began to think we don't need God anymore at all and reject that divine, it was a process that took a long time to get there, that um, the lower story of nature has eaten up the upper story. Everything is to be explained by the lower story. You are just a, a bunch of chemical reactions. So any illness you've got, or any, especially any emotions you have, all of your emotions can be explained by chemical reactions. Even love that you feel is just the presence of certain chemicals in your brain. And man does not have a mind. Man is simply a brain. That's the foundation of modern psychiatry and psychology, that man only has a brain composed of chemicals. 
And when those chemicals are altered, the man is altered, and that's all that he is, is a product of chemical reactions because he only has a brain, not a mind. Now, what I think the Bible teaches, a man does have a brain, and it's full of chemicals that God made, but there's a spirit, not the brain, the mind behind that, that has some control over that brain. So which is it? You have bad brain chemistry because you're depressed, or are you depressed because you have bad brain chemistry? Good question. I think it's both. Okay. And we could talk about that some of the time, but what happened is, I don't know if it's showing up here properly, but this upper story is now gone in modern thinking. In everything that you were ever taught in school, I don't care if it's grade school, high school, college, post-graduate work, every, everything you see in the media, in movies, books, it's all based on the notion, whether it knows it or not, that there is really no upper story. It's just an imaginary thing that people make them, make, create to make themselves feel better. Everything is just the physical world below. And everything can be explained that way. This is why everybody comes to worship what they call science. Because science is just a study of the natural world. And it's a good thing. Understood, it kept where it belongs, but when it becomes the God, then everything is distorted. And so this is the problem. And that's why we've stopped believing in the truth because truth was coming from another place. The truth about man's nature, who he is, was coming from another place, the upper story, not the lower story. Because the lower story about man, the natural man, only tells you part of what you need to know about human beings. You are more than a series of chemical reactions and electrical impulses. But if you don't, if you don't believe that, then man is very little more than an amoeba or a dog or a cat or a bat or whatever you want to say. You know, uh, nothing more than that. They're just the same things. Now, what the Bible teaches is that there is a personal and infinite God. We'll come back to this in a moment. I don't want to spend too much time here. But the God, the true God of the universe is not like the Roman gods or the Greek gods or the pagan gods of Mexico or somewhere who is just the product of of immaterial natural forces. Because, see, those gods were just natural forces personified, lightning, the sea, the mountains, whatever. They're just natural forces given personalities for the most part. Once again, the lower story. No, this god is personal. He is a person. Not a human, but a person. And he has a personality. He has characteristics. He speaks. He thinks. He's different than the nature that he creates. And this this personal God is so infinite in his power and wisdom that he was able to make a whole world, universe, outside of himself. The universe is not God. We're not all part of Mother Earth. Pan-everything is, pantheism. No, God made the universe outside of himself and controls that universe from the outside. And then in history, at some one point in time, because he loved man, there's that word love. Love is not just a chemical combination of chemicals. Love exists in God without chemicals, because it's real itself. God is love. God, because of love, came into space and time, into history, in the form of Jesus Christ, to die for man. So there's an invent. This natural world's been invaded by God. Not only was it made by God, but it's been invaded by God on the cross through Jesus Christ. And so this God, there's a chasm then between this personal infinite God and everything else. 
the angels, however mighty they are, and all the different kinds, man, the animals, plants, machines, there's a big chasm between those two things. On the other side, there is a great chasm. The, Bi- the truth is, the Bible says that there's, a, there's angels and man on the upper story with God because they're made in his image. And then there's a chasm and then everything else. The animals, the plants, the machines. So yes, you share some characteristics with the bonobo monkey. Not the chimpanzee, but the bonobo. You share some characteristics with him. But you are not a monkey. You are different. You are made in the image of God. And the Bible teaches this, but it's not found anywhere else. And that's a critical, important, unbelievably significant concept that's lost in our culture and it's why you're experiencing and seeing the cruelty and the foolishness that you are because that concept of law is lost on those oops I did the wrong thing is lost on those of our society around us now we need to move on here because I want you to see that I want to skip way ahead The Bible says, we went last week to Psalm, I don't want to read it again, Psalm 19, you can read. First part says, the heavens declare the glory of God. We can see from the heavens, what Romans says, his everlasting power and divinity. You can see from the universe that God made. Two things. You can't see if God is a good God or God's a loving God or what, if you're a sinner from that, but you can see from the nature, you're without excuse for not believing in God because you can see it in the universe that God made. And then it says, and so they declare the nature of God, and then um, the latter part of that Psalm 19, the last few verses talk about the law of the Lord's perfect, converting the soul. Now there's truth revealed in the scriptures that tells you something about God in the written word that you can't learn in nature. You can't learn that Christ came and died for your sins by looking at bugs and trees. Beautiful mountains. People post pictures. How, I think Steve went the other day. Beautiful sunset. God's wonderful God. Beautiful sunset. Well, that's a good, that's a good meme. I love sunsets. Means it's about time to go to bed. No, but you know what the real, you know what the real truth about the sunset is? My dog has seen as many sunsets as I have. He doesn't think anything of them at all. The key is not, what is beauty? Is beauty just a chemical reaction in my brain? No. A sense of beauty and wonders put in me by the God of the heavens. The only thing that's marvelous about the sunset is that I perceive it as beautiful. Because God made me to perceive it as beautiful. And I see things in nature that cause me wonder and all. My dog doesn't. As nice and pug as he is, he doesn't see that. He just wants to be fed and go back to sleep. Because he's a dog. And dogs can do nice things, but they don't appreciate sunsets. Jesus says, do not cast your pearls before swine. Why? Don't give what's holy to dogs. Because they're animals and they don't appreciate. So beauty, the beauty of God, the real truth about God is not found in the sunset per se, because we don't know anything about God from that, except that he's powerful. But we do know from the scriptures what we can know about God. So the scriptures present two kinds of knowledge then. For us, they give us a knowledge of God and a knowledge about nature and man. They give us two kinds of knowledge. And so we see both of these found in scripture 
all through. We, have, we could go to hundreds of scriptures to show this. They give us knowledge about God himself and what he's like, what he does, what he thinks, his person, his personhood and his nature. And they also tell us then about the nature of man and the nature of nature. What nature really is. Is nature something that's been here forever? Uh, or is it something God made? Is it God itself? Is nature God? The American Indians believe that nature was God itself. So the Romans, very similar. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Nature is something different than God itself. God made nature. So it, they, do, they give us knowledge about these things, important pieces of knowledge that form a framework for all the modern science we have. Everybody that loves science has to understand and should be willing. If they honestly will consider it, they will understand, they do understand, and used to understand it, that all of modern science is based upon a Protestant theology, not even Roman Catholic theology, but specifically a Protestant theology that talks about the nature of man and God, and because of the belief that God was a rational being who made man with a rational mind like his, and he made the world outside of himself, governed by principles that the Bible reflects, that man could take his mind and understand nature by using his rational mind. That's how science began. The Greeks didn't have this. The Romans didn't have this. The Buddhists didn't have this. It came out of Protestant thinking in the Reformation and in the Renaissance. And that's the key as to why now we can do the things we can do scientifically. Well, half of you are trying to figure out how you can find an interesting website because I'm preaching right now that isn't very interesting. You're holding in your hand the product of that thinking, you see. Because, and that, now what happened is, it came to be because, didn't I tell you earlier that that bottom story, nature eats up the upper story and just gets, it's gone. Now that's what's happened. So the upper story is gone. Man, because man is smart and clever, he decides he can be God. And he gets rid of the top story. He wants to be the top dog. So you got to get rid of the top story to do that. Now, the scripture does not give us exhaustive knowledge. It doesn't give us uh, every piece of knowledge that could possibly be known about either God or nature. People like, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about computers, so the Bible's no good. Well, well neither do a lot, does a lot of the other literature and things that you think are so great either do that. But the, the the Bible doesn't give us, and doesn't make any claim to give us exhaustive knowledge about any particular subject, but it gives us true knowledge about the important subjects, about the framework of the world that we live in, about man himself. And without the framework and the true knowledge, uh, Francis Schaeffer in his books calls it true truth. There's truth, but then there's true truth that makes a difference that is significant truth. That's a fundamental part of the truth, you see. It's true that I eat oftentimes these days special K with freeze-dried strawberries in it for breakfast with milk, whole milk. That's true. Is it significant truth? Only to me. If it's not there, you know. But that's, so there's truth in science. So in scientists, experts are people that know less and less, more and more about less and less. A true expert is somebody whose knowledge is so minuscule about one particular aspect of any particular thing he's studying, whether it's microbiology, he's an expert on one little kind of genetic mutation here or there, you know, not even all things. They become more and more expert about less and less things. 
That's what we call experts. That's who you're letting run, in your, run your life and tell you what to wear when you go out with masks on. That, that's who you're letting run your life, those people. Oh, it's a fact. They're, they're not made to govern you. They think they are because if they know so much about so little, somehow they think, well, God, you know, I must be God because I am the science, you know. They even come to think of themselves as the science. It controls everything because man then gets inflated because he knows a lot about a little thing. But all those particulars of all those experts, however nice that may be and however good that may be, and it's all useful information, if you can get it together, it's still just a collection of facts. There's nothing that holds it all together. There's nothing that makes it all make sense without true truth. Now, true truth tells you what to make of that, what sense it makes. I used, to, I used to debate. Yes, you know. So I had, back then in the old days, we had three by five cards and we wrote quotations and facts on them about all these subjects. I had them all categorized. I, I got scars on my hand. My fellow University of Florida carrying a big case of all these cards for a big debate, state debate tournament, you know, in college. And I slipped on the wet grass and sliced my hand open. Those people at UF, those gators wouldn't even stitch me up. Anyway. That's what I think of University of Florida. But anyway, they, they, uh, I had all these facts. It was my job to make sense of all those cards and take the cards and make something true truth out of them to make them make sense. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. The Bible does that. So here's what the scriptures do. We're finally getting to our subject today. My, my wife is smiling. The lady who spoke for an hour yesterday, the ladies' retreat. I just love that. Some things happen, and you can't plan them, and you can't even imagine them, but they're so great when they do, because you know that this is a useful fact that you will always be able to use. <laughs> I found out my best friend, my big, strong best friend who made fun of me, blah, blah, blah. I found out one day that he was afraid of snakes. I didn't say anything. I just smiled inside. This is a useful piece of information. He, the big strong boys are afraid of snakes. I can use this because I'm not. So Judy spoke for an hour yesterday. This is great. But man, man is, here, here's what the scriptures say about man. The one thing that I, I really, it is an evidence to me. And I think it's more strong than it may sound. It, this doesn't sound like much evidence for the Bible, but I think it is. And it's been presented by other people. The Bible presents man as he is. Human literature and especially mythology, and the other gods, supposed gods, and other way, other systems of thought, do not present human beings as they are. This is what I love about the Bible, even, even down to the granular level of presenting King David as an adulterer. That granular level of one man, it presents that man, a great man, as even Abraham passing off his wife as his sister because he was afraid. It passes off one of the greatest men who ever lived in God's sight, the friend of God. It, it shows you that he is what he was. It's true truth about man, even to the granular, small sense. But it presents the big picture of man, too. What is man? Is man a series of chemical reactions who came out of nowhere, out of the slime of the oceans, and is going nowhere? We're all just dust in the wind. Is that what man is? Is that all we are? I just loved it. We, I was involved in a debate at, at um, I think this was in, uh, uh, I think this was at the University of Indiana. 
one of their campuses years ago. And I was a moderator in a debate for my friend against a, uh, a person there who was a member of Madeline Murray O'Hare's Atheist Society. And this fellow thought he was pretty smart. So uh, he wasn't. Well, he was smart, but he wasn't. He didn't have any way to put it together. But anyway, the point is, before the debate, I kept watching this fellow a little bit, just saying, he's there, he's got a girlfriend with him, and they're just lovey-dovey with each other. You know, kind of like I would be at, at that age, you know, girls there, and he's over there trying to impress her, and they're hugging, kissing on each other before the debate. He goes up and speaks, comes sits down, and she's all lovey-dovey with him, you know. So I told my partner, said, get up and ask him if that love is real. Ask him how he knows what love is. Because if there's no God, what is that? What is all that stuff he's feeling? What is all that he's feeling toward this other chemical reaction sitting there? Make sure you present that that girl sitting there is just a, a series of chemical reactions and electro, electromagnetic force or whatever. That's what she is if there's no God. She came out of the slime and she's going back to the dirt. What is she? And what is this thing you feel toward her that you... I, I, I said, Kenny, I saw him whisper, I love you. Love? Can you define love as an atheist to me? And make it significant any more than I love pizza? <laughs> Seriously. If there's no God, I love my wife and I love pizza are equivalent statements. They have no more meaning one for the other because they're... Pizza and my wife are made of the same stuff. That's the ground. They're made of the same stuff. And they're going to go back to the same stuff. And that's all there is. And so we presented this idea that his little lovey-dovey thing with us. He couldn't even talk. This. I said, Your I told, tell him that his view of the world is so limited, he can't even explain his girlfriend. And you can. I have an explanation for why my wife is worthwhile, me loving her. She's worthwhile. She ought to be loved, and and I ought to treat her a certain way. I'm using that word ought, too, right? He can't even say the word ought. What ought an atheist to do? Anything he wants. That's what he ought to do, because there's no ought. When I say I ought to do something, there's someone above me that I'm saying, yeah, I ought to do it because there's something above me. There's an upper story up there over my head. But modern man has no one above his head. And that's why we see the cruelty and the wickedness always have in humanity in that sense. So the Bible says man is wonderfully made in the image of God. He is not a whale or a dolphin or a porpoise, you know, whatever, or whatever else they are. He's not that. Not a koala bear. Not a bondable monkey. He's something different. And he's made in God's image. And it also says about man, oh, even the Calvinist now says, oh, the man is, that's not man, man is depraved. Okay. The Bible also says man is a sinner. I don't even know about, it says all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't know if that's speaking of the whole store, chain of stores like the Woolworths or whether it's just talking about individuals. But I do know down to granular meaning all have sinned. That's a fact. Okay. And so it presents man as a sinner, as one who has, and it presents this man, I'll just say it this way, my way of phrasing it is, this man who is a sinner 
is living in a world full of sinners that has fallen away from God's grace. That man is living in that world. And so since I've been a child, my thoughts and actions, even though I'm made in the image of God, have been, have been infiltrated and influenced by all this sinful world I'm living in, all these ideas and other people that are influencing me to do wrong. And guess who likes that? We like that because we are also sinners. So man is wonderfully made, but he's also a sinner living in an upside-down world that even if he tries his best, doesn't make sense. Hebrews 2 says it this way, and we're going to close here. Soon. Hebrews 2, 5. For he has not put the world... He has not put the world to come of which we speak. That's the heavenly world in subjection to angels. For one testified in a certain place saying, this is Psalm 8 is the passage the writer's quoting now, Psalm 8. What is man that you, God, are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? But you have made him a little lower than the angels. And that's mankind, that's man. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But yet now we do see that man, we do now see not yet all things put under him. Now, here's what he's saying here. Don't get confused by the language. He's, he's saying something high and exalted about man. This man, kind, human beings, have been made just a little lower than the angels, which are magnificent creatures. Far beyond, in fact, when people see angels in any true form, they fall down as if they're dead. We can see them as humans sometimes in the past we have. But when they see an angel that appears as an angel in some fashion, they fall down at their feet and beg them to go away in the Bible. Because they're so magnificent. He says, I've made man a little lower than the angels. This is a great compliment to us. What does he say about walruses and porpoises and monkeys? Not a word. Not a word. Elephants. Oh, they're just so much better than human beings. Really? Not according to the true truth of the Bible. They're not. Because man has been made lower, a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him, that's mankind, with glory and honor. This is man's true state. This is what God thinks about man. That's how he made him to be. And you set him over the works of your hands. Here's this. The heavens declare the glory of God. Guess who God put in charge of that? Human beings. He put us in charge of all of that that you see and says have dominion over it. And control it and use it for your benefit. That's what God's, that's what God thinks of us. That's the power. And I think we've yet to even begin to scratch the surface of how that's going to work out in time. If we come back in a million years, you would see that human beings, by God's mercy, even though we're sinners, He will have blessed us to have control over so many more things that we don't control now in the world. Use so many more things. There's so many things out there that He's made that we don't even know about yet. We think we know everything about everything. And we don't even scratch the surface. I, I mean, that's my prophecy. You, you and I will both be long dead, so you'll have to tell me about that in heaven, how right I was. But we've only scratched the surface. If you make it. Anyway, just teasing.
But he says, I'm putting everything under subjection to man's feet. And yet he says, you know, I see this. Even though I've put all things under his feet, the writer Hebrews looks around and says, but we see some things aren't under man's subjection. Well, what is that? Death. The one thing man can't control is death. I read the other day that they figured out on some level how to control a nuclear fusion, which is the true source of all our energy problems, solutions. Nuclear fusion turns everything into helium and burns, makes so much more energy than nuclear reactors. It isn't even comparable to a nuclear reactor. It's so much more powerful. And they figured out how to control it in a laboratory. That's a huge thing. Nobody even knows about it. You know, we're worried about monkeypox. That's a huge thing. And, and I don't know what I was going to say, but he, he says, there's something that man can't control. He's going to die because I pronounce a sentence of death upon those sinners. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And we've all been put under that, that judgment. And so we see man not that. So, and so he says, but, but the next word in the Bible is so important in verse 9. The next word in the next verse. Even though we see man not subject to death, death is going to get us all. The next word is so comforting. What is that next word? It's one, it maybe is the most important word in the Bible. But. There it is. But. But we see Jesus. Who sees Jesus? Only Christians. Only people who believe. The rest world only sees death as the end. All they can see is death. The one thing that all men live in fear of and bondage to fear of. They see death and that's all that ends up being. We're just dust in the wind. But we Christians who have true truth, we see Jesus. Who is made a little lower than the angels, just like us. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So he brings back the suffering of the death. He brings back the glory and honor, doesn't he? And the little lower than the angels. He brings back all those elements from the previous verses. It says that, he, by the grace of God, might taste of death for everyone. There it is. There's the gospel. Now that is the true story of man that unbelievers can't understand. And when we did understand this as a culture and a civilization, we did understand what a woman was. We did understand what was right or wrong, even though we didn't do it. We didn't understand that all men were created equal, even though we didn't live by it. We understood that, and we had some basis to call people to that. We had a basis to say, what you're doing is wrong, but now there's no basis for that. But Christians understand the true truth, that, that we are made in the image of God, even though we're lost sinners. But we also see that Jesus came to save these lost sinners. And you know, I keep using this word granular. This is my favorite word today. What's that mean? It means some of these things seem so big and in broad strokes, but really where the rubber meets the road is that when it says he came to taste of death for every man, some versions are every one. Guess who that is? That's me. That's granular. That's the small grain, the one person. C.S. Lewis says that if only one man had sinned, Christ would have come and died for that one man. If the only sinner had been you, he said, I can see from the Bible that Christ would have come and died for that one person. Do you believe that? 
Well, how many does he come and die for? He comes and dies for everybody. How many of those people are going to be saved? A small percentage. He did it, he did it anyway. He knew that. He knew that people would reject him and reject the gospel. And God knew that. But he came anyway because he knows what man really is. He really is important, even though he's a sinner. So this is, this is the important thing about this. I can't go on to these other things here, but, but th- there is place for significance for human beings in the gospel. And this chart here makes sense about this personal infinite God. We need to realize how important that is. Th- thanks for listening today. I appreciate it very much. I've gone too long, but I-, I do want you to think about that, that Christ Jesus came in history in real space, real time, a real event, and tasted death for everyone. And the question is, will you take advantage of that? You, 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 you. Well, will you take advantage of that? Not will somebody else take advantage of that? Will somebody else love him? Will somebody else do it? But the question God really is concerned about, will you obey the gospel? Will you follow him? Because that's why he died, for every one. And that's you. We're going to sing the song that our brother has selected up here. I think it's it's not up here. Sorry about that. Um, We're going to sing this song uh, as a closing song for our sermon this morning. Number 337. 337. Is that heart right with God? If we can help you by baptizing you into Christ, we'll take your confession of faith in Christ. If you've repented of your sins, you want to become a Christian and serve him. Let Christ lead you. You can be saved today. We'll do that right now. And you can begin a new life because you are significant. If you wandered away from God, you know the truth. Come. There's only one way. Get back in that way with Jesus Christ. We'll pray with you today. God can restore and heal and your brothers and sisters can help you. Come right now. Let's stand and sing.